This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. I'd like to thank Carly and Kay for the last three shows which permitted me to follow COP26 in Glasgow. Kay's focus on geoengineering and Carly's focus on the psychological impacts of the climate crisis just show what a dedicated weekly radio program can do. There's nothing like it in the mainstream. Even at COP26, I felt a lot of the people that we usually give a platform to were not heard. And after COP26, they were talking of betrayal and failure. Our people are watching. I rang the ABC to ask on air why they don't have a regular show dedicated to people taking climate action, like 3CR does. And the presenter said... I have heard of a lot of those groups because they do crop up from time to time in stories across the radio national landscape. And I guess the ABC is a different beast, isn't it, from community radio? I think after we've had 18 months of COVID reporting, we're distracted by all sorts of tensions in the world, but we can't drop climate change from the media again. I know there's a lot of coverage, much more than there ever was, but we don't have a dedicated show like this show, a drip feed of the latest information to encourage action. particular show will look at reforestation. There was a pledge at Glasgow on day two to stop and reverse deforestation by 2030. The deal included $6.2 billion of private finance and $10 billion of public finance to restore deforested land and support Indigenous communities. I think it would be wonderful if this could gain high profile and gain huge support because we've tried it before in 2014 and nothing much happened. Now it's urgent as the Amazon becomes a net emitter of carbon rather than a carbon sink. I did an interview with Peg Putt about loopholes. Of course, this is not going to be smooth sailing and she's a veteran of many COPs and many negotiations about preserving forest. One of the loopholes is around biomass, which is currently framed as a renewable energy. And Peg will talk to us in about 15 minutes. Of course, the Glasgow COP is a failure, as Alok Sharma announced. I apologise for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. But I felt energised and profoundly alive. I'll tell you why I felt that. I was watching COP26.TV. It's something organised by George Monbiot. He's part of it. And it was just streaming 
hours at a time, five hours of streaming, for example, in Glasgow streets. And you could see the amount of action from around the world. People were there given little platforms, people from Borneo, people from the Amazon, trade unions, women's groups, all sorts of people, creative, comical, histrionic, terrifyingly plaintive, um, but all sorts of groups were given a platform there, including a lot from Extinction Rebellion who did a die out of doctors and nurses all lying down outside a bank, um, J.B. Morgan, Stanley Bank, you know, lying on the pavement with their label on them saying, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a anaesthetist, I'm a nurse, um, just showing the connection between finance and the way climate action is turbocharged by the fossil fuel industry still, including subsidies. But I felt encouraged to see that. There was the, the inside COP was very cautious, very diplomatic and rather painful and even a bit boring. The outside was energetic and creative and incredibly well informed. Here's a taste of the street theatre down by the Clyde River. A comedian plays Boris Johnson with all his false solutions and a real scientist, Dr Charlie Gardner, debunks his plan for reforestation. I'm John Johnson. And I'm a delegate here. I'm a delegate here for the uh, for the COP conference. I'm here to inform you all that you're doing it all wrong. Okay? Now we have all of the answers, and we can guarantee you, we can guarantee that there will be no further problems in regard in regards to the climate crisis. Okay? So I'm going to start with uh, with our four part. We've got a four part plan. Okay? A four part plan. That's four. One, two, three, and four part plan to resolve all of the inverted commas issues that we have with the inverted commas climate crisis. Now, I would like to begin with number one. Firstly, we're going to plant a trillion trees. How does that sound? Yeah? What, what, that, that would work, right? Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Planting trees, trees are important. We all know trees are important. Our natural ecosystems absorb a quarter of all our emissions, and we simply cannot get out of this climate crisis without conserving and restoring nature. And so you will hear people like Mr. Johnson saying that all we need to do is plant some trees. And tree planting is a hugely popular solution. It's cheap, it's easy, you get a nice photo up with the politician and his, his spade. You can even get the community out to help you and you have a nice day out. And of course, trees are good. Trees are fantastic. They store carbon. They provide habitat for wildlife. They help reduce flooding. And of course, we love them. They give us amenity value. Trees make us happy. But while the right tree in the right place does all of those things, the wrong tree in the wrong place can be a disaster. Governments and other organizations around the world have made mass tree planting commitments in response to the climate crisis, but these commitments almost all involve the planting of industrial monocultures of non-native species. Anyone, 
Anyone that has traveled around Scotland or Wales or the uplands of England knows that these industrial plantations of spruce are deserts for wildlife. They're dark and sterile, nothing lives there. You will see projections, scientific papers published talking about the potential of tree planting to solve the climate crisis. Unfortunately, the way these calculations are made is that they simply, they take a map of the earth, they find everywhere that's not farming or cities and that could possibly support trees, and they say all these areas could be planted. Unfortunately, most of those areas are existing biodiverse habitats, places like grasslands and fens and peat bogs and moors. And if you plant trees on a grassland, you're not seeing a forest, you're destroying a grassland. So this careful in the way tree planting is done. It could be a disaster for biodiversity. Of course, it would be ridiculous to suggest that places like the Serengeti or the Masai Mara are planted under plantations of eucalyptus, but this is the sort of thing that will be proposed as an emergency climate action. Trees also take a long time to grow. They take a long time to absorb carbon. But if we're planting a tree now that's going to be mature in 50 years, the world is going to be very different in 50 years. And the conditions for that tree to survive might not grow. We're seeing that already with mass forest fires all around the world. There are projects, there are tree plantations that have been you know, established as carbon um, sequestration projects that have already been burned in forest fires. But the main thing is, well, two main things. Tree planting is a distraction from the much, much more important task of protecting the trees that we already have. Trees, you cannot create a forest. You can plant trees, but you cannot create a forest. Right now, we have lots of policy saying we should plant more trees, and yet we're letting the Amazon and the Congo Basin be cut down. This is nonsensical. Protecting the trees we have is much more important. And then finally, of course, the reason why people, politicians are so keen to sell tree planting is that it gives the impression that they are doing something while avoiding doing the only thing we really have to do, which is stop burning fossil fuels. So I'm not saying trees are not important. Trees are fantastic and we must increase forest cover. We should not do so through tree planting, we should do so through natural regeneration, and this is not an alternative to stopping burning fossil fuels. We need to do both. Thank you. Even if my tree plan is, is no good to all of you lot, I've, I've got another idea, and that, and that is around carbon capture technology and other innovations which will solve everything. Okay? What do you think of that? A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. 
So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Another cause for joy was to hear the ardent voices of women. Here is Elizabeth Watuti from Kenya. She's a follower of the famous Green Belt leader Wangari Maathai. Elizabeth represents the Green Generation Initiative and she tells us of the starvation and drought right now in Kenya. My name is Elizabeth Watuti. I am a youth climate activist from Kenya. I have done a lot of soul searching about what to say here today. I have asked myself over and over what words might move you. And then I realized that making my four minutes count does not rest solely on me. My truth will only land if you have the grace to fully listen. My story will only move you if you can open up your heart. I can urge you to act at the pace and scale necessary, but in the end, your will to act must come from deep within. I need to tell you what is happening in my home country. Right now, as we sit comfortably here in this conference center in Glasgow, over two million of my fellow Kenyans are facing climate-related starvation. In this past year, both of our rainy seasons have failed, and scientists say that it may be another 12 months before the waters return again. Meanwhile, our rivers are running dry, our harvests are failing, our storehouses stand empty, our animals and people are dying. I have seen with my own eyes three young children crying at the side of a dried up river after walking 12 miles with their mother to find water. Please open your hearts. This is not only happening in Kenya. Over the past few months, there have been deadly heat waves and wildfires in Algeria and devastating floods in Uganda and Nigeria. And there is more still to come. By 2025, in just four years' time, half of the world's population will be facing water scarcity. And by the time I'm 50, the climate crisis will have displaced 86 million people in sub-Saharan Africa alone. I would like you to join me in holding a moment of compassionate silence for the billions of people who are not here with us today, whose stories are not being heard, and whose suffering is not being felt. 
please open your hearts. If you allow yourself to feel it, the heartbreak and the injustice is hard to bear. Sub-Saharan Africans are responsible for just half a percent of historical emissions. The children are responsible for none, but they are bearing the brunt. We are the adults on this earth right now, and it is our responsibility to ensure that the children have food and water. I have been doing what I can. Inspired by the great Professor Wangari Mathai, I founded the Green Generation Initiative, a tree-growing initiative that enhances food security for young Kenyans. So far, we have grown 30,000 fruit trees to maturity, providing desperately needed nutrition for thousands of children. Every day we see that when we look after the trees, they look after us. But these trees and the life-saving fruit they bear will not survive on a 2.7 degrees Celsius warmer planet. The decisions you make here will help determine whether the rains will return to our land. The decisions you make here will help determine whether the fruit trees we plant will live or perish. The decisions you make here will help determine whether children will have food and water. I believe in our human capacity to care deeply and to act collectively. I believe in our ability to do what is right if we let ourselves feel it in our hearts. So for these next two weeks, let us feel it in our hearts. The children cannot live on words and empty promises. They are waiting for you to act. Please open your hearts and then act. Thank you. Now here's a song from Alcina Charlie. Her words are the text of the Pacific Demands at COP26.
it's hard to believe that the world could stop deforestation by 2030. One way would be to not let biomass wood pellets be counted as renewable energy. Pegpart is a veteran of this campaign. Pegpart is with us to talk about the Glasgow Declaration on Forests and Land Use. It was signed by 100 countries and they're pledged to end deforestation by 2030. Peg is an expert on forest negotiations at the UN level and is the coordinator of the Biomass Working Group. We last heard from Peg during the Tasmanian bushfires when she was surrounded by smoke and had bushfire refugees in her house. And I've invited her today to explore the loopholes in this declaration, which looks so good on the front <laughs> of it. So welcome, Peg. Just let's start by telling tell the listeners what it's like where you are today. Oh, well, where I am today, it's a lovely spring morning in Tasmania. Basically, plants are leaping out of the ground virtually. Uh, trees um, have been growing magnificently because we've had a wet spring. And so as the eucalypts grow bigger and broader, the, the, the bark has been peeling off in magnificent colours and uh, <laughs> the forests are really alive and, and growing. So it's, it's great. Well, look, let's start now. We're at the heavy thing of the United Nations in Glasgow, and there's a lot of money in play. Let's start with the money. I want to know, will restoration of forests mean money to conserve forests as carbon sinks? Will that be given to Indigenous protectors, for example, in the Amazon, in Borneo, in places where people are already protecting the forests? It's a big question about the money. It never gets down to the people on the ground or very rarely. And Indigenous peoples are the best protectors of the forest that there ever were. Where you, you have Indigenous communities still living in the forest and securely there, those are the areas of forest where there have not been massive incursions and uh, deforestation and large-scale logging. Those, those communities have protected and lived with those and within those areas for decades, centuries, millennia, and they're the very best people to do it. But the money, the money for looking after forests, unfortunately, is routinely allocated to forest agencies, and that means logging agencies, where they go around saying we're doing deforestation, and what they do is plant monoculture plantations. So you've swapped a beautiful, rich, biodiverse forest with all of that life in it and all of that carbon in it for something that is just really poor in terms of both carbon and biodiversity and no place for people to live. It's also going to government departments all over the place, that money, and um, just very little trickling down to what is really needed. Furthermore, it's not enough. When the uh, Glasgow uh, Leaders' Declaration on, on Deforestation and Land Use came out, the observation immediately was we need $500 billion a year mm. to keep our forests and to restore and rehabilitate them, restoration being quite different to tree planting, which is putting in monoculture plantations more frequently than not. And the UN doesn't differentiate. In the, at the climate convention, they don't differentiate between a monoculture plantation and a rich natural forest. So 
that leads you into a world of trouble. Yeah. Well, look, the pledge commits also business leaders like CEOs to eliminate activities. This is the phrase they use to eliminate activities linked to deforestation. And I want to know what does this mean for products like palm oil, soybeans, beef, and what alternative livelihoods for local people are proposed? For those forest commodities, they are there because the forest has been completely got rid of and replaced with those activities. But it's usually big agricultural conglomerates that are uh, running those. Here in Tasmania, for example, we've just got a huge issue going on about JBS buying out the um, one of the big aquaculture companies because people are really upset about what aquaculture is doing. They already own um, the big meat processing facilities here. They're Brazilian. They've come out of the cattle industry. They are monstrous and they have an appalling human rights record and an appalling record of corruption. Their two main principals ended up in jail for a number of years. Um, These are the people that actually um, are benefiting from the uh, deforestation and something really does need to be done about that in the global supply chains. So what does it mean when they've signed up to commit to, you know, delinking their activities from deforestation? It's a, it's a leader's declaration. It doesn't it isn't signed by those companies. Mm. I don't know how those com- the, the leaders are going to make those companies suddenly become good when they've been so bad. It, this is a feel good Statement And one of the problems is it's not inside the formal negotiations uh, that are going on at COP26 in Glasgow. This is a thing that's happening on the side as um, a feel-good declaration. Uh, but it's not, um, it's not got the force it would have if it was actually part of the negotiations because then it would have to be accountable and it would have to be transparent and we would see whether or not it was working money was going, who was involved, who was doing something, who wasn't. None of that's going to happen. Mm, look, it sounds so simple. You know, I, I love that it was on the first day or second day they declared that, and it sounded so simple, but there are gaping loopholes, aren't there, around the definition coming now to wood pellets and biomass. They're calling it renewable energy. But would you tell us about how huge this trade is, Sketch you know, the dimensions of this wood pellet trade and what the Glasgow Declaration says about something that you've been calling fake renewables. The Glasgow Declaration, I think, is incredibly misleading because it talks about deforestation and it talks about land degradation, but it totally ignores uh, the thing that we see daily in Australia and people are seeing all over the world, which is industrial-scale logging. That occurs in places that are forests, And it remains in the possession of the forest industry or the state for dedication to forestry, and therefore it is not counted as deforestation. So Mm. it's just completely outside of this declaration. All the industrial-scale logging you actually want to tackle Mm. isn't in here, but what is in here is a commitment to sustainable forest management, which sounds lovely but actually means business-as-usual logging. Um, So we're talking about clear cutting on a massive scale all over the planet. Um, And and that is increasingly to feed uh, bioenergy, that is to feed putting forests into what were coal-fired power stations and burning wood instead Mm. to produce energy 
or co-firing it with coal to make the coal more efficient. Now, when you burn forest, it actually emits more carbon dioxide immediately than burning coal. But what we've got here is an industry that is built on this notion that somehow that can be carbon neutral or zero emissions. And the idea is that you chop down a tree, you burn it, it grows back, everything's equal. The problem is when you chop down a forest, we don't often see it growing back to what it ever was before, mm. and we certainly don't see that happen inside the timeframes for the Paris Agreement. We're meant to be cutting emissions in half by 2030 and getting down to net zero by 2050. Burning forests is sending it in the opposite direction, and it's escalating. In Europe, um, it is massive already. They can't supply enough from their own forests. They're getting it from overseas. Same in the UK, and now that's beginning to happen um, increasingly in Japan and South Korea, and they're searching down into the forests of Southeast Asia and to Australia for that supply. At the same time, places like Australia, we've got a big um, controversy in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales where the Red Bank's power station, a very inefficient old coal-fired power station, is now uh, slated to be um, reopened as a 100% biomass burning power station out of forests. These are the koala forests of northern and mid-north New South Mm. Wales that would be fed into that power station allegedly for renewable energy. It's an absolute outrage, and people are starting to rise up about it all around the planet. But the problem is that the countries that are that are burning it benefit greatly because they're able to um, account for it as zero emissions in the energy sector due to yep. some dodgy accounting um, in the carbon side. So they look like they're doing a massive job on renewable energy, such as Europe. I think people in Australia would be stunned to discover that 60% of the renewable energy in uh, Europe is bioenergy. It's not wind or solar. That's a very small proportion. And most of that bioenergy is actually forest biomass coming straight out of the forest. So a huge amount being burnt in the name of uh, fixing the climate when it's actually not only making climate change worse, but it's also driving the biodiversity crisis. Oh, it's so discouraging because it just seems like humbug. It just seems like they're pulling the wool over your eyes. And all these, you know, I've been attending the COP, Uh, Glasgow cop sort of looking at the people in the street as well you know these sort of side events and things in the streets and people Amazon people there beautiful girls with feather crowns and people speaking so earnestly about the forests that they do live in and do preserve and do have huge connection with and then to have these people just doing accounting tricks it's just the most dreadful deception it's so late in history to be doing it like this. I, I can't bear it. It's almost beyond belief, isn't it? Yeah. We find it so difficult to explain to people what's happening because they simply can't believe that leaders would behave so badly or be so misinformed or that people would be prepared in support of an industry to go so far in the wrong direction whilst claiming that they're doing the right thing when mm. we're on the cusp or beyond the cusp of something really irretrievably bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I mean, I guess this is what one learns about human nature and about politics and that when you take it to the international arena, people don't get any better and politics doesn't get any better. There are layers mm-hmm. of deception before you actually get to real change. 
one of the th problems is that this stuff is so convoluted and deliberately so about forests mm. that a lot of those high-level makers themselves don't understand. They think that when they commit to deforestation, they're actually going to do something about um, the loss of forests. They don't understand that they're committing to ongoing conversion of natural forests into monoculture plantations, into um, degraded forests, mm. so on. Um, if if they're not going completely off the scale to another land use, which would be deforestation. Yeah. Well, look, Boris Johnson, you know, waxed really lyrical at one stage. He called the forest these great teeming ecosystems, these cathedrals of nature, the lungs of our planet. Well, look, you're a former politician. Listeners might not know you. You were in the Tasmanian Parliament as the leader of the Greens. So you know politicians, they do get very um, flowery. But um, what do you think those 100 countries really need to do to make the flowery rhetoric a reality? I mean, just talk to those countries. What do they need to do? We need those forests of six, I think. Just talk to them, those 100 countries. What do they need to do? Well, those countries need to comprehend that these feelings that Boris Johnson articulated are ones that are felt deeply by so many people around the planet. We have a, a real connection to forest. We came out of the forest originally, but the forest also, when it's standing, it's not only the teeming biodiversity, it is the highly concentrated carbon stocks that are out of the atmosphere, down on the ground, stored safely in the forest. And what we need to do is keep them there. And so the leaders need to say to the people implementing it, that's what we wanted to do. There are a bunch of weasel words, tricky words, such that we can keep on doing industrial scale logging all over the place and, um, and say that we've met the pledge even though we've destroyed forests. But that is not morally the right thing to do, given what people have understood the declaration was meant to do and if you're relying as leaders on tricky language to mislead people so you look good whilst behind the scenes at the negotiations you don't go far enough then it's completely unacceptable um, and of course we as the people have to get on top of it and keep pointing that out to leaders as well as just giving a thumbs down to burning burning wood for energy, just as we do for burning fossil fuels. We need to go beyond burning. We've got to stop using carbon fuels. Yeah. Tell us some examples of places where that leadership is being shown. I, I'm interested in to know if people are being compensated. You know, in Australia, we have this whole problem of the just transition for coal workers, for example. You know, and it just hasn't materialised. It hasn't been, the vision hasn't really been painted strongly enough and there are still people voting to protect those 19th century jobs, let's say. So in the way, forests, where are some leading examples that you might have seen or people you've worked with where they've got a vision of how you would do it, how you keep keep the people who are presently profiting sort of active? You know, they could, to me, they could all be deployed as restoring the forest, you know, pay people to restore forests of the degraded lands, you know. But what do you think? Well, the shining example to me is Costa Rica. I went there with Christine Milne um, oh, a long time ago now, in 1998, when they first started talking about protecting their forests as big stores of carbon and biodiversity. 
um, and completely changing their approach. I mean, this is a country that's also been bold enough to say we don't like war, we're not going to have an army. <laughs> um, so, you know, we are talking about politicians on the cutting edge. When we were there, we went to see the forest and we came across a school tour group. Every school is taken to see the um, protected forests once a year at least. And what the we got an interpretation of what the, the teacher was telling the children who were going through and seeing the way the forest was protected and seeing people with jobs as guides, taking people into the forest to have a look. Um, you know, there was a whole lot of ranger employment and other employment behind that, uh, looking after the natural values and then promoting the tourist industry and these big hubs nearby the forest but not actually encroaching on that. And the children were being told that if they tried hard enough and were good enough, and became well enough qualified, they would be fortunate and be able to work in the forests on this big program that was going to benefit the country and the world. That's the attitude that we need all, all around the world. And uh, Costa Rica's really led out on that and, and continue to do so. Are there any other examples? Like I've heard this massive tree planting projects, but are they in tandem with this mm, philosophy of protecting? So tree planting schemes can be very dubious. What we need to look for is, is, is forest restoration, which actually often the forest will do for itself. Occasionally it needs a bit of help. So replanting degraded areas with a combination of cropping and tree cropping and having trees for shelter belts and so on so that they're actually improving the environment for nature and for humans and making it into a place that can feed people and that uh, stores a lot of carbon. So you do see that sort of thing happening and being advocated, and that's part of this conversation about nature-based solutions to climate change, mm. uh, being able to keep some areas natural, revert some areas to what they were naturally, and in other places do a combination of what you need to do to produce food and provide um, a nice space for humans um, at the same time as growing a greater diversity and bringing trees back into the equation. What's happening in Glasgow with the Biomass Working Group? Are they influencing winds or how's, how is that going? Oh, it's a long, hard fight and things are done in small increments at, at a COP. Uh, our problem is that many of the most influential developed countries and developed country blocks like Europe are benefiting from burning biomass because they look like they're doing something good. So they look so burning forests um, helps them make their carbon accounts look good. Europe got very rattled in um, reviewing their renewable energy directive and have had to begin to constrain some of the criteria around burning forest biomass, but they haven't taken it off the books yet. Mm. Um, the same thing's happening in the UK. They're really strongly pushing not just burning uh, forest for energy, but then taking the emissions and, and trying to pump them underground somewhere in um, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And the pumping underground somewhere is even more dubious um, in terms of whether it would ever work because it doesn't at the moment in any sort of scale anywhere. Um, they're trying to push that. So we've, we've been doing the work, but we haven't got into a decision point in the negotiation yet. We're pressing towards that and we're beginning to get um, the likelihood of reviewing some of those um, 
those policy settings, but it won't happen at this COP. It's a, a, a work of, of some several years and um, we're, we're further ahead than we were, but we're not near a resolution yet. Um, partly because we need to deal with fossil fuels as well, um, but mainly because it's a good place for cheating and the countries like cheating, so they all look good, even if the atmosphere doesn't know the difference. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much, Peg. Um, I, th I think from the, the street, you know, from all the Extinction Rebellion people and the children, I don't think people are putting up with this lack of honesty, the cheating, you know, even government. People are just so distrustful of governments. A lot of people being interviewed in the street saying that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, listeners, we have, just have to be very brave with this. Peg's an absolute warrior in this field and has been doing it for so many years. But we have to stand firm behind this effort because it will it will evolve into something. It might not be at this COP. But I, I notice a lot of people are just saying, oh, this COP is, you know, media are just saying this, oh, this COP is a great failure, a great disappointment. And then they more or less throw their hands up in the air and walk away. But I think we have to hang in there, don't we? Well, we can't walk away. We're talking about the, the future of, of our life as humans on the planet anyway mm. and a lot of other life on the planet. Um, and uh, when it get, comes down to it, you know, every citizen has a role to play and we're finding more and more people are coming to our cause definitely um, and, and really begin to, beginning to shake things up in numbers and, and saying they're not going to go away. And, you know, thank goodness for the young people actually pointing out all the blah, 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 because it is. Mm. And it's always been um, this complicated smokescreen to try and fool citizens. And what we actually need is some genuine commitment and some moving forward. Now, some places really want to do that. <laughs> the Pacific Island states, for example, they mm. desperately want to do this. And look at how Australia's treating them and treating those aspirations absolutely outrageous and that's our country doing that on our, our behalf so we have to stand up um and you know it's not an easy thing to do uh personally uh, and it, and it's very emotionally difficult as well but for me I'd, I'd just feel worse if i didn't and i think that's where people get to in the end you've got to do a bit of something whatever you can do yeah okay well thank you very much peg i've been talking to peg but in Tasmania. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to The Climate Action Show every Monday at Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. And the podcast of this show will include extra material. So plug in to Climate Action Show, Radio 3CR. A Martin Luther King moment happened when the Prime Minister of Barbados spoke to the world. Her name is Mia Motley and she's the leader of the Labour Party. 
Our people are watching and our people are taking note. And are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? How many more voices and how many more pictures of people must we see on these screens without being able to move? Or are we so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity? I have been saying to Barbadians for many years that many hands make light work. Today, we need the correct mix of voices, ambition, and action. Do some leaders in this world believe that they can survive and thrive on their own? Have they not learned from the pandemic? Can there be peace and prosperity if one third of the world literally prospers and the other two thirds of the world live under siege and face calamitous threats to our well-being? What the world needs now, my friends, is that which is within the ambit of less than 200 persons who are willing and prepared to lead. Leaders must not fail those who elect them to lead. And I say to you, there is a sword that can cut down this Gordian knot, and it has been wielded before. The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. $25 trillion. Of that, $9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that $25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition, or the transition of how we eat, or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us. I say to you today in Glasgow that an annual increase in the SDRs of $500 billion a year for 20 years put in a trust to finance the transition is the real gap, Secretary General, that we need to close not the 50 billion being proposed for adaptation. And if 500 billion songs big to you, guess what? It is just 2% of the 25 trillion. This is the sword we need to wield. And we've come here today to say, try harder, try harder. Because our people, the climate army, the world, the planet, needs our actions now not next year, not in the next decade. Thank you to COP26 TV for the hours of streamed video from the streets of Glasgow and from the COP26 main YouTubes that you can find of many of the sessions. The real hope is in groups like Extinction Rebellion and its many offshoots, the students, the well-informed and energetic people, the Indigenous people who braved the cold of Glasgow the daily COVID testing, one of them said her nose was bleeding from the number of swabs she'd had to do. And the disappointment that we still all have to try harder. This was the first COP they even mentioned coal, much less getting a global agreement to shut it down. Our people are watching. But we have to try harder. Thanks to Peg Putt and to all the webinars I've attended, this is only a taste. 
If you want the longer version of this show, go to Climate Action 3CR for the podcast, which includes extra material. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. To go out, here is a standout speaker from Uganda, Vanessa Nakate. Thank you very much. We are, as United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres recently said, on the verge of the abyss. As the IPCC report said, The science is now unequivocal. The latest available science tells us that in order to avoid the worst impacts of the climate crisis, we must reduce global CO2 emissions by somewhere between 7% to 11% this year and next year and every year after until we get to zero. So what are we doing to pull ourselves back from the abyss? Countries have come to COP26 to make new pledges to reduce their emissions. And lots of companies and banks and investors have descended upon Glasgow to make big climate commitments. And let me say that, of course, the idea that countries, companies and investors committing to drastic and immediate action to reduce emissions would be most welcome. But let us be honest, we have been here before. There have been 25 COPs before this one. And every year, leaders come to these climate negotiations with an array of new pledges, commitments, and promises. And as each COP comes and goes, emissions continue to rise. This year will be no different. CO2 emissions are forecast to jump in 2021 by the second biggest annual rise in history. So I hope you can understand why many of the activists who are here in Glasgow and millions of activists who could not be here do not see the success that is being applauded within these halls. I hope... I hope that you can appreciate that the 9 million people dying every year from breathing toxic air, from fossil fuel-driven air pollution, do not have decades to wait for oil, gas, and coal to be phased out. I hope you can appreciate that we may be skeptical when the largest delegation here at the COP26 Climate Summit does not belong to a country, but instead belongs to the fossil fuel industry. I hope you can appreciate that where I live, a two-degree world means that a billion people will be affected by extreme heat stress, In a two-degree Celsius world, some places in the global south will regularly reach a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius, 
at that temperature, the human body cannot cool itself by sweating. At that temperature, even healthy people sitting in the shed will die within six hours. We see business leaders and investors flying into COP on private jets. We see them making fancy speeches. We hear about new pledges and promises. But we are drowning in promises. Commitments will not reduce CO2. Promises will not stop the suffering of the people. Pledges will not stop the planet from warming. Only immediate and drastic action will pull us back from the abyss. So we have some who are already starting to call COP26 a success. But a few days ago, a climate action tracker report showed that COP26 is actually putting us on a pathway for a 2.4 degrees Celsius world. And this is our problem. We have two pathways. There is the pathway of commitments and hype and promises and fanciful net zero targets and happily ever after. And then there is the pathway of the best available science of ever stronger storms and droughts and floods of toxic polluted air, of real people suffering and dying, and these two pathways are diverging. The truth is that the atmosphere doesn't care about commitments. It only cares about what we put into it or stop putting into it. Humanity will not be saved by promises. It's hard to believe business and finance leaders when they haven't delivered before they have not been faithful in their promises. They have not been honest in fulfilling their commitments. They have not been trustworthy in making their pledges a reality. So, I have come here to tell you that we don't believe you. We don't believe that banks will suddenly put trillions of dollars on the table for climate action when rich countries have struggled since 2009 to raise $100 billion for the world's most vulnerable countries. We don't believe that promises made by financial companies to end deforestation will actually prevent trees from being cut or burnt down. We simply don't believe it. But I am here right now to ask business and finance leaders, show us your faithfulness, show us your trustworthiness, show us your honesty. I am here to say, prove us wrong. I'm actually here to beg you to prove us wrong. We desperately need you to prove us wrong. Please, prove us wrong. God help us all if you fail to prove us wrong. Now for some bonus items from the climate conference in Glasgow. I couldn't fit these all into the broadcast, so I hope you will enjoy these extended sessions from COP26. In this session, Minga Indígena, we hear from indigenous peoples in Latin America. They spoke in their own languages and Spanish or Portuguese. So I've edited the translation for you and hope you hear their voices. 
First, a Peruvian farmer from the Altiplano talks about climate change. Then a Quechua woman from Argentina, Amalia Vargas, tells us a phrase we need to learn by heart, free, prior and informed consent. I hear this from all the Indigenous groups who are protecting their land against mining usually, but it's this violation of their consent. Now we have an opportunity to hear the messages from the peaks of the Andes uh, and also from really the spectrum of diversity of peoples and worlds uh, represented in the Minga Indígena. So we're going to share the mic amongst us. Um, Adrián Huaman is from one of the highest parts of the Andes, over 4,500 feet above sea level. And he comes from one of the communities most impacted by climate change. Uh, they live um, growing potatoes and they're seeing that in their potatoes and their animals there are all kinds of changes and impacts of climate change even on their ancestral seeds uh, which is causing the harvest to vary greatly. So here I am and I look around and I'm a bit perplexed. ¿Cómo viven acá? How do you live here? Yo ahorita no podría estar acá. The truth is I couldn't live here. This is a fake kind of heating that you have to make. I need to be warmed by the earth and the wind that runs through the mountains. How can we talk about the change? Sitting in a room with artificial heating, how can I talk about climate change? For me to talk about change, I need to feel the cold of the Andes and the heat of the rainforest. I don't understand what those big government negotiators are doing over there. My name is Adrián Huaman. I come from some of the highest communities in Peru. Um, my community sits uh, 4,200 feet above sea level. And so we have to really bundle up to live there. De lo que me ven, de esto me falta más todavía. So I wear even more clothes when I'm back home than I'm wearing now. Bueno, para mi comunidad, Es una sola palabra, es la reciprocidad. One word is really the response to your question in my community, and it's ain, ain, which is uh, reciprocity. And so when we work, we um, not just work, but we also ask for help from our brothers and sisters. And all together in this collective fashion is really the way to go forward. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much. Turaicuna, eh, Ñoca Amalia Vargas, Argentina Manta, los saludo en mi lengua. Buenos días hermanos y hermanas. Eh, soy Amalia Vargas, desde Argentina. 
good afternoon, everyone. My name is Amalia Vargas, and I am Quechua from Argentina. So here today amongst you are indigenous peoples representing many different communities. Um, I'm from the Andes, and there we're seeing, as we speak, the privatization and commodification of water and animals and plants. And they're killing life, and they're harming our territories and the forests and our sacred sites. So we need an awakening, uh, a, a collective awareness and consciousness and um, really we need to wake up spiritually so that we can stop this ecocide that is happening with the burning of the mountains and the forests and nature. So we also challenge uh, researchers and scientists to make efforts to understand indigenous people's wisdoms and our traditional knowledge systems. We also call for indigenous peoples to be formally recognized and our territories demarcated, not just in Latin America, but throughout the world. Y que se tenga un... <clears throat> consentimiento libre, previo e informado ante los territorios que van a actuar los diferentes estados. Muchas gracias. And lastly, I just like to adamantly call for respect and implementation of indigenous people's right to free prior informed consent prior to any project or policy being designed on or implemented in our territories. Thank you very much. Now from Amazonas, a man called Moy talks about genocide. His grandmother was one of the first of his people contacted by outsiders. Full of emotion, he thanks the people of Glasgow for listening to the voice of his ancestors who couldn't be heard before. Good afternoon. I greeted you in my language. My name is Moy and I Yo vengo de uno de los pueblos que están dentro de la Amazonía, uno de los pueblos de último contacto. I am from the Amazon and I'm from a people that has recently been contacted. Um, it's been a process of 60 years of uh, contact and it's been quite a struggle and journey for me to learn Spanish. Um, my grandmother was the first woman of my people that was contacted and had contact with the outside world. She was mighty and she planted the seed that is my mother who is here today amongst us. So, as you can perhaps gather, I come from a long line of powerful women indigenous warriors. So my message to you this evening is that the government is killing us. They are granting concessions to more and more oil companies to come and drill in our territory and pollute our rivers and kill our animals and kill us. Um, there's a genocide going on. I'm from 
the most biodiverse place in the world and the government has named it but they're wrong to do so because it's our home and we defend our home and we haven't been to your kind of schools or university but nature has taught us all that we know and we celebrate and continue our wisdom in our songs and in our oral tradition and we defend our traditional knowledge systems and we are here to protect Mother Earth. Es, es la voz de mis abuelos, de todas las personas que nunca pudieron dar o sea, el mensaje, nunca pudieron decir, miren, no están haciendo esto, así que gracias. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm so happy that you've heard me and understood me and heard the voice of my ancestors through me. The voice of my ancestors who couldn't be heard before. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, I'd like to follow up on what Moy was saying. I'm from Colombia, and in Colombia, those that defend the environment, the environmental defenders are getting mowed down, they're getting assassinated, and the government is just deaf to the demands of the communities and the people. So my question is about how can we amplify the message of the indigenous Minga and these leaders here in Glasgow so that together we can defend nature? For me, it's actually been quite a long process. As I said, I'm from the Amazon, and for me to begin to amplify my own voice, I needed to reconnect with my roots and the traditional knowledge and wisdom of my people and the nature of my territory. And that's what strengthened me and really I began speaking about my grandmother and my mother and their voices and the history of my people. But little by little I also began to weave my own history and share that as the amplification of my voice as well. But really I, I keep it simple. And what, I, what I'm rooted in is my culture and my cosmovision and the relation of my people with nature. Much further south in Brazil, we learn how cities and capitalism are swallowing up indigenous sacred sites. The speaker, again, talks about genocide and connects it to our consumerism. She says a haunting phrase, our lives are more important than capitalism. Uh, boa tarde a todos, todas. Uh, sou Luana Caingang, do povo Caingang, sou do sul do Brasil. So good afternoon. I'm from the Caingang people of the southern part of Brazil, and I want to tell you a little bit about how things are in southern Brazil and how my people are suffering. I'd like to tell you about how the uh, ever-expanding cities are invading our sacred territory and even expanding where our ancestors are 
buried. Even our sacred symbols and sacred sites are expand, um, affected by this ever-expanding frontier of urbanization. Right now in Brazil, the indigenous peoples are suffering all-out genocide. And with that comes uh, flagrant destruction. This is really tough on our spirits. It's weakening us. So the current administration in Brazil is waging an all-out war on indigenous people's rights. So I'm here to appeal to you and ask you to limit your unbridled consumerism. It's urgent that you do so, so that our territories and people survive and also for the well-being of Mother Earth. I believe that if we stop consuming so much, um, it's going to cause a, a shift and a change in the states and in the companies. So um, I think we need to dramatically cut our, our buying and our consuming, and I think that will um, really uh, change things uh, at many levels. Yeah, but what is very clear is that we have to be the change that we want to see. We can't um, uh, twiddle our thumbs and wait for the politicians or the UN Climate Summit and the COP to have some sort of positive outcome. They're just lost in an endless negotiation with um, really no real direction, so it's up to us. Our lives are more precious than capitalism. And of course, um, Mother Earth is very precious as well, and we need to live in harmony with her. Uh, eu agradeço. Thank you very much. Buenas tardes, mi nombre es Nayeli Valencia, soy del pueblo Zapoteca de Oaxaca, México. Good afternoon, my name is Nashali Valencia and I'm from the Zapotec people of Oaxaca. I'm here to share my voice with you today even though really uh, in the COP they're not listening to indigenous people's voices. And so what they're up to in the COP is making decisions about our territories in the name of climate change and they're proposing climate mitigation strategies with our territories and our land and our well-being. In my land and territory for over a decade there has been a um, wind farm for carbon credits that has been being imposed without our consent. So we're here to say we are in struggle, we are resisting the onslaught of such projects, we are defending our territories, we are defending our ancestors, and we need to be heard. So as I said, we're here to defend our voices, our autonomy, our self-determination, and our land and territories which belong to us. Thank you very much. Questions revealed that it's not just mining projects that invade Indigenous territory. Even wind farms and tourist projects in Yucatan can end up as ecocide. Just remember that Indigenous people protect the ecosystems that stabilise the climate. They didn't ram this point down our throats, but I feel that is the main thing we need to protect them. 
uh, for. That's the reason we must be so grateful to them. Very few people protect a huge territory of land that is essential for climate stabilization. Good afternoon. My question is, what can the Minga Indigena and each one of you do um, united as original peoples and as a public, what can we do to respond to the um, uh, urgent and uh, call of the Maya nation uh, who are really facing an emergency and who are uh, facing um, ethnocide and the disappearance of the great Maya culture territory with all its wealth. Um, I'm speaking specifically to the onslaught of the mega project that includes the Tren Maya, which is this Maya train for tourism throughout the Yucatan, uh, but it includes the building of airports and the expansion of ports and solar energy complexes and uh, the expropriation at a huge scale of Maya territory. So what, what can we do to avoid this ecocide and genocide against the Maya? Uh, in Mexico, we've seen that right now there's a leftist government. Uh, in the past, the more right-wing governments have uh, opened the doors to the pillaging of the United States and Europe. What we're seeing with this more so-called leftist government is that they're throwing open the doors to China and Russia also to pillage. So at the end of the day, we really haven't seen any change um, regardless of what government is in power, we're seeing that there is death and destruction for indigenous peoples. So how can we put a halt to this? First of all, um, yeah, it's clear that whether a government is leftist or right-wing, um, these governments continue to promote extractive industries. Um, as far as how to support the Maya, I think that we need to be very respectful and ask the Maya communities themselves about their analysis of the situation and the onslaught that they're facing and ask them to uh, tell us how they would like us to ally with them so that we're not imposing things from the outside. Thank you. Last year in the COP, the Minga Indigena uh, worked closely with the Maya as well as um, in the last session of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples in New York. Uh, and the, uh, we helped arrange for a meeting with the government and also supported the Maya to denounce uh, the uh, aggressions that they are facing. From Australia, here is Gavin McFadzin and Dr. Virginia Marshall on land clearing at a side session of COP26. It's also about respecting an indigenous approach. Um, Australia, it would shock some people uh, to know that Australia is still one of the worst clearers of native vegetation on the planet. Durable, consistent federal climate policy uh, is what the Australian public's calling out for and it's actually what the business sector 
is calling out for as well. I was talking to some business interests just at the Australian Pavilion here, and they all said that like they'll take cash incentives from the Australian government to increase their te technological development and penetration into the Australian economy, but they all said that they would trade that for a consistent national durable policy environment in Australia. That wouldn't get us there alone, but it would be significant progress forward, along with some of the other things um, that Richie said around transport and um, stronger logging and land clearing controls and protection of nature and natural and cultural values in Australia. But you think that one thing that we see at COP is the huge advertising with plant trees, plant a million trees, but for us as Aboriginal people, you've got to have the understory, you've got to have the, the tall trees, you've got to have the ground cover, you've got to have the, the, the species on the ground, you've got to have us there. So, you know, we've got to get rid of that whole idea about wilderness. You know, we need all of that combination. It's not just planting a million trees. And I think that's what I'd like to see too, more of a realistic view of an Indigenous position. I think that's so important. And lastly, I couldn't resist this. George Monbiot and Professor Kevin Anderson are absolute heroes of mine, and they have kept the edge on the climate debate. We can never get complacent. Here's a conversation between them with um, Democracy Now's Amy Goodman, by permission from Democracy Now, we just uh, include their take on COP26 in Glasgow. We're joined by two of Britain's leading critics of how the climate emergency is being handled at the summit. George Mambio is with us, journalist, author, columnist with The Guardian. He's been hosting a daily program from Glasgow on COP26 TV called Mambiosis. His most recent book is titled Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. His latest piece in The Guardian, Make Extreme Wealth Extinct. It's the only way to avoid climate breakdown. We're also also joined by Kevin Anderson, professor of energy and climate change at the University of Manchester and the University of Uppsala in Sweden. He's a former director of the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research. Kevin, let's begin with you. Kevin Anderson, you say that science is on the side of civil society, not as you call them the climate glitterati or the negotiators or even some climate scientists. Can you explain? Yes. Um, well, this really goes back to the, the clip you had from, from Joe Biden, when he said it's, what matters is the physics and the maths. And the physics and the maths are really clear here. If we are to deliver, deliver on the commitments, the 1.5 degree C commitment, for instance, that Joe Biden made at the G7 communique earlier this year, the maths and the physics tell us that at current emissions, we have eight years at current emissions for a good chance of 1.5. And even for an outside chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade, we only have 14 years. So when you then listen to the calls that are coming out of the various civil society movements, they're much more in line with the rates of change that fit with the science than when you hear about these vague discussions between world leaders about future collaborations to make relatively small reductions in the emissions from their countries. So they are not talking in any way in line with the physics and the maths that Joe Biden evokes. But the, actually, the, the protesters and the civil society movements and their work that they engage with more locally, all of that is much more in line with what the science is calling for. And Kevin Anderson, can you say specifically what exactly does the science suggest uh, these biggest emitters, uh, uh, the U.S. And, and China, should be doing? We're in such a, a, a desperate situation now. We have been 30 years, 31 years now, since the first major report on climate change. And emissions have just been going up year on year. We now have very little emission space left. So the sorts of announcements we need to be hearing are things like 
no more fossil fuel development and the rapid phase out of fossil fuel use within, um, with the, particularly within the wealthy countries. If you just take our 1.5 degree C commitment and you, you recognise the difference between what are called developing country parties in the Paris Agreement and developed country parties, so the richer and the poorer parts of the world, then for the richer parts of the world, if we are to deliver on our 1.5 degree C commitment, then we need to be um, zero emissions from energy by around 2030. If we want a, an outside chance of 1.5, by 2035. Now that sounds impossible, but that is, we are in this situation because we have listened to these world leaders give us their vacuous talks for years and then go home and do absolutely nothing. And Biden and Obama demonstrate that, with Obama demonstrated it in the US before, Biden's demonstrating it now, um, and obviously Trump in between, well, you know, the less said about him, the better perhaps. But we're seeing this in virtually all the world leaders. It's not just the US, it's the, it's the EU, it's the UK, it's Japan, it's Australia. There is no leadership within any of the progressive countries. And to be blunt, you know, China is, is, is really reflecting that absence of leadership when it comes to climate change as well. George Monbiot, uh, I'd like to bring you uh, into the conversation. You've been uh, covering the summit and what has been missing from the summit that should have been included, that should be part of the, the talks. You said in a tweet earlier today that, quote, not one of the 26 climate summits has seriously discussed the crucial issue, which is leaving fossil fuels in the ground. George Monbiot, could you talk about that? Yes, I mean, their failure to discuss this crucial central issue, not getting the stuff out the ground in the first place, suggests that everything we've been hearing here and at the previous 25 summits is basically distraction. It's hand-waving, it's grandiloquent gestures, it's pleasing the crowd, but it's not addressing the central issue. And, you know, it's much easier to leave fossil fuels in the ground than to deal with the way that we burn them once we've extracted them, because there's just a few thousand points around the world where we extract them, whereas there are billions of end uses of those fossil fuels. So while we might say, well, yes, we have to insulate our homes, we have to change our light bulbs, all the rest, which clearly we do, the most immediate and practical way of dealing with this impending catastrophe of seeing off the greatest challenge humankind has ever faced is to say, right, we're just going to stop. No more coal, no more, no more petroleum, no more gas is going to come out of the ground by this date. And as Kevin says so rightly, you know, it has to be full decarbonisation by 2030, so that should be the date. We're just going to stop getting it out of the ground. And you say, well, how is that remotely possible? It is more than remotely possible, it is eminently possible, as we saw when the US entered the Second World War on the 8th of December 1941. Within months, it had turned the entire economy around, from a civilian economy to a military economy. Between 1942 and 1945, the US federal government spent more money in current dollar terms than it did between 1789 and 1941. So now they say, oh, there's no money, there's nothing we can do. That's just nonsense. They could fix this in no time at all if they wanted to. If we had a program on a comparable scale, we could leave all fossil fuels in the ground by 2030 and switch to an entirely new clean energy economy. And George, also, your, your, I want to ask you about your, your recent piece, which is headlined, uh, Make Extreme Wealth Extinct. It's the only way to avoid climate breakdown. Now, we hear 
about the discrepancies in terms of emissions and consumption between rich and poor countries. But what you emphasize in this piece is the staggering difference uh, between the consumption levels of rich individuals around the world and the need, therefore, uh, for a wealth tax. Could you explain uh, what the situation is? This is a fundamental issue of justice and equity. So the top 1% uh, in terms of wealth around the world uh, use 15%, produce 15% of the greenhouse gas emissions, which is twice as much as the bottom 50%, whose total emissions are just 7% of the total. So we're looking at uh, a very small number of people grabbing the lion's share of natural wealth. They claim to be wealth creators. They're actually taking wealth from the rest of us. They're saying, we're going to have all this atmospheric space for ourselves. And incidentally, all these other resources, all the mahogany and the gold and the diamonds and the bluefin tuna sushi and whatever else that they're consuming on a massive scale. And this is driven by, to a very large extent by their remarkable disproportionate use of aviation. Um, there's one set of figures suggesting that the richest 1% are responsible for 50% of the world's aviation emissions. But also by their yachts, for example. The average um, common or garden super yacht um, kept on standby for a billionaire to step onto whenever he wants um, produces 7,000 tons of carbon dioxide per year. Um, if we're to meet even the conventional accounting for staying within 1.5 degrees of global heating, our maximum emissions per person are around 2.3 tons. So one super yacht is what? Over 3,000 people's worth of emissions. This is just grossly, outrageously unfair. And we should rebel against the habit of the very rich of taking our natural wealth from us. Now, Kevin, you yourself have not taken a plane in years. When we interview you at the different climate summits, you have taken a train. You say it's a great way to get work done, finish reports, etc. You also use the term uh, zero carbon rather than net zero. I'm wondering if you can talk about um, zero carbon and also whether you feel China gets a disproportionate uh, percentage of the blame. Yeah. Well, this this expression, net zero, to me, this is the most damning part of COP26, but it's not just happening here. If you went back a few COPs ago, you would never hear the, the expression net zero. It's, it's really merged. As, as the challenge has got harder, and that's meant that, that actually the policies need to be put in place to bring down emissions today, because our policymakers are, are too weak and lack the imagination and courage to do that, what we have done is develop this term net zero, which allows us to move the burden of reducing emissions from today out to future generations, literally out to 2050 and beyond. So everyone is now using this expression net zero. You can be a net zero oil company. You can be net zero Saudi Arabia or Qatar or Norway or the UK or the US. Everyone can become net zero. Every county, every company. It's, it's, it's vacuous. It's completely meaningless. When you unpick what's behind net zero, it, the, it, I mean, all it is, I often say, it's, it's Latin for kicking the can down the road. It's passing the burden on to the next generation. Um, and disturbing for me is that actually a lot of the academic community has swallowed this net zero rhetoric. So we are not looking at the sort of changes that we need to make to, as, as George said earlier, we need to rapidly phase out our fossil fuel consumption. 
But you don't have to do that if you've got net zero, because you can carry on burning the fossil fuels and our children will find technologies to suck the CO2 out of the air in years to come. That's our hope. That's our way of delaying the burden of mitigation from this generation onto the next generation. There are multiple ways that net zero is doing this, but that's the most obvious one. These, these future technologies that we're relying on in all of our scenarios, in all of the IPCC intergovernmental panel on climate change scenarios about what we need to do about climate change, they rely on either technologies or, technologies or so-called nature-based solutions, which are also equally dangerous for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in the future. Um, so that is incredibly dangerous uh, reliance. Um, when it comes to China, I mean, China is a, is a very high emitter. Obviously, we all know it's the, it's, the, it's the largest emitter at the globe. But, of course, it has a population of about 1.3 billion people. So, roughly, I think, three to four times that, four times that, I think, of the U.S. Its emissions per capita are still only, I think, just a little over one-third of the U.S. And we put, we put a lot of responsibility on China, saying, well, look at, it, look at its very high emissions. They do burn a lot of coal. But I require their coal to be burnt so that we can smelt the aluminium so I can make my Apple lapbook, uh, uh, notebook out of it. Look at the equipment that we're using. A lot of it is made out of metals that have been um, um, turned into manufactured goods in China. And then we blame them because they're using lots of high carbon energy to produce those materials. It is true, China has to move away from those. It has to rapidly move away from its, from its very rich and deep embedded fossil fuel um, industry. And it has the potential to do that, probably more than most other parts of the world, because it is very good at making these rapid shifts in technology. But we, we, must, we must not continue to blame China for these, for these um, manufactured goods that, that we're using. We need to take a more collaborative approach. And perhaps if there is anything to come out of Biden and uh, China's discussions here, maybe there is some, something in there about how do we facilitate the parts of the world that are the manufacturing base for the rest of us? How do we facilitate them making a rapid shift away from fossil fuels? Well, Kevin's absolutely right about net zero. It's a way of delaying hard choices. It's a way of passing them on to future generations of politicians. And that's what has been happening for the past 30 years. We, we've done it with different terminology. We haven't used that language, but it's all been about delay and deferring and, and leaving the problem for somebody else to tidy up. And net zero is just continuing that catastrophic process. That's why we're now faced with such an incredibly tight window in which to make effective change. But we can make that change. I mean, just as there are tipping points in ecosystems, potentially catastrophic ones that we don't want to pass, there can be positive tipping points in society and in politics where we can very rapidly change the way that we produce our energy, change the way that we use our energy, um, change the way that we live, which is also essential because, as Kevin says, you know, it's, it's not just a question of, of how we produce this great tidal wave of consumer goods, but why are we producing this great tidal wave of consumer goods? Let's stop. Let's just stop doing it. And let's, let's find other ways of measuring quality of life other than being flooded by this great tide of plastic and metal and electronics, 99% of which we simply do not need. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.